I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A rich, necessary read this season is the debut memoir from Tara McGuire, who joins me now. She has written Holden After and Before, Love Letter for a Son Lost to Overdose. It's a reflection on grief and a fascinating navigation and documentation of her son Holden Courage's life. She retraces his last months investigating the confluence of events leading up to his death at 21 of an accidental opioid overdose. The sorrow of a parent is evident throughout the book, but the reader is also uplifted by learning about Holden and what kind of person he was to so many people. It is a beautiful life, and one that is reflected in the work he did as a graffiti artist. There's also a lot of blank space in Tara's excavation, and she employs some embroidery in her narrative, making for a conversation of sorts between her and her son. It's a moving dialogue, and one that is informed by whatever fact Ms. McGuire could collect. The book is also a, re- a reminder that the opioid crisis is still with us, and needs addressing quickly. The lives lost that we see reflected in Stark Numbers Monthly are more than that. Their lives, like Holden's, cut short needlessly. Tara McGuire is a former broadcaster turned writer who was a graduate of the Writers' Studio at Simon Fraser University and the University of British Columbia School of Creative Writing. This new book is published by Arsenal Pulp Press and will be launched tomorrow night, Wednesday, the 28th of September. Visit Tara's website at taramaguire.com for more information. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Tara McGuire. Ms. McGuire, good morning. Good morning, Joe. How are you? Pretty good yourself. I'm good. I'm excited. It's all happening. Indeed. It's a great book, as I was just telling you before we started. By the way, the copy that I have is a, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, a galley, I guess, an ARC. Yeah, um, advanced copy. Yeah. There's a few typos in there. Um, there's the, um, in my copy, there's a photograph of a, of a mural. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Holden's name and then him in the middle of his name. Yeah. Um, I assume that's in the in the finished copy of the book. Is that right? Yes, it definitely is. That is the mural that is currently in Vancouver East Van at at uh, Main and East Fifth. That's the mural that's referred to in the book. And um, if I follow you on Instagram as well, and, and I remember over the summer you were you were uh, you're quite involved with the mural festival. Is that right? Yeah. Well. Um, a few years ago, I guess five years ago now, we wanted to do something to remember Holden through his artwork, and I connected with the Vancouver Mural Fest, and they were fantastic. They already had some kind of thoughts about wanting to include graffiti in the mural festival, mm-hmm. so it just uh, integrated really well, and we've been doing it ever since. So it, it makes me want to go down to Maiden Fifth and see this. <laughs> well, you should, because yeah. I think they've got their development permit. I, I don't know how uh, long it's going to last, yeah. so... I'm actually going to um, make sure I get some really good photographs of it because it might be gone any time now. Was Holden always artistic? Oh, yeah, yeah. As a kid, he was always drawing and painting and making things and making little, like, graphic novels. And, yeah, definitely an artist and a musician all the way through. He's a fascinating person, and, and he's, he's someone who comes across in, in your book as just a great guy and someone that... that um, we're all lucky now in terms of the publication of this book to get to know him. Uh, you talk, I guess, uh, in the book about um, him growing up. You, you would read novels together and then, and then come together afterwards and then talk about them? Yeah, yeah, we would. Holden had an incredible vocabulary, and he... I'm sorry, my dog is barking. Is that okay? No, that's fine, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, he and I had a, both shared a love of books, and I would often get a copy of whatever I was reading and offer one to him. And I mean, I'm talking about like grade four. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and we would talk about them. And yeah, he was a real fan of Margaret Atwood. He, well, the post-apocalyptic ones, you know, like Oryx and Crake, I remember him reading. Yeah. And he loved, um, oh, oh my dog, I'm so sorry. He loved um, all kinds of biographies, like your typical Hemingway and all that kind of stuff. But uh, in terms of, I'm just going to go yell at my dog. Sure. <laughs> Guess what my dog's name is? Well, what is it? Stop that. His, her name is Joe. Oh, just like you. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, so yeah, we shared a love of of literature together, and now it's just making me realize that maybe that's why I thought about paying tribute to him in this form. Uh, when was Holden born? 1993. He and, would be 29 years old. And um, his first name, I guess, his given name, I guess, or the, the name on the birth certificate is William, which is named after his father. Is that right? Yep. But but he would go by Holden, and, and that was even at a, at a, as, as a kid, as a baby, say? Yeah. He would go by Holden. Holden was his mother's maiden name, and she was the last surviving female in her family. So, of course, when she got married... She lost that name, mm. uh, so it was a it was a tribute to her. And it's 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 great too, as we read in the book. It's kind of funny when we, we uh, when someone meets him and says your your, your name is William Holden, <laughs> and then um, yeah. at the beginning of the book, the, there's a quote there from um, um, Salinger from Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, and so it has, has all these meanings. But for you, what was the meaning of his name when you gave it to him? For me, it was, a, it was he was named after his grandmother, and she was an extraordinary woman. She was so funny and bright, full of laughter, always singing. Um, in her time, in her prime, she was a dancer, and she was just so elegant. And she was he was named after her, Holden. And but people would always make those comparisons to catch her in the rye mm. um, with that name Holden because that's kind of the most famous one. Um, actually, you know, um, what is the name of that? I'm just going to take a pause. There is a comedian that used to be on Saturday, Dennis Miller. Oh, yeah. You remember Dennis Miller? He named his son Holden, too, but he did name him after the catcher in the, uh, you know, the J.D. Salinger character. Yeah. But that was never my intention, our intention with naming Holden. He was always just named after his grandma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, your book is, is, um, fascinating in that it, it's um, your story it's his story obviously um, and it's told in these so, sort of two streams if you will that that it's a memoir about you and and um, what you were doing during all of this and you recreating his life as it were um, it, it's also a marvelous way for us to hear Holden we we, we understand him as we we read his voice, if you will. Um, why was it important for you to have sort of these two streams of dialogue, as it were, through the book? Well, it was a really important process for me because I didn't know how to write a book. <laughs> Initially, I started off just writing Holden's story from his point of view uh -huh. and in his voice. And it became clear over time that that just was problematic, um, and that I was kind of appropriating him and his life in a way that to me didn't seem authentic. So um, I had to shift 
and figure out a way to restructure it. And I've restructured it many times, but I landed in a place after a lot of advice from a lot of very qualified people where hopefully it's nicely balanced and, you know, the jumping off points into those fictional pieces about Holden are based in fact, but they are, you know, amalgamated characters, compositions of things that happened or didn't happen. They come from text messages from his phone or photographs that I had or memories from other people, you know, conversations I had with people. So those fictional scenes are built on the research part, but they're made up um, because, of course, I wasn't there. So how can I possibly know? But I had to connect those blank spaces. So I didn't really know how else to do it. And it just ended up in this sort of two-strand weave, if you will. Yeah, I, lo- I love what you call it at the near the end of the book. You, you, you call it informed fiction. Um, some people might think it's autofiction, but I think informed fiction is a much more accurate um, term for it. Yeah, I mean, I can't call it complete fiction because obviously no. Holden got from point A to point B. These things did happen. He was in certain places. I know, for example, he was in downtown Vancouver. You know, I know he rode the sea bus. Yeah. Do I know what he was thinking or wearing or looking at while he was on the sea bus? Absolutely not. So the, those vignettes are completely fictionalized. The um, there's, there's another thing that you do, and, and I found it fascinating. Um, and um, I wondered about it at first, but then I, then I realized what, what um, just how much more effective it was. Sometimes you you um, refer to yourself in the third person, sometimes in the same paragraph. Yeah, that was tricky, and I had to work really hard on that because, as you mentioned, like part of the book, the memoir part is first person, past tense. Uh-huh. And then the fictional parts are third-person, present tense, in Holden's voice. So how would he think of me? There aren't very many times when we're together, um, because obviously I was there, so those would be the memoir sections. Uh But there are a few points where Holden's talking, but he's referring to me, so it would have to be her. Yeah. Kind of weird. (laughs) That's what I thought at first. And then I thought it's awfully effective in in the sense that that, um, you, as the writer now, are able to separate yourself and in some way grasp Holden again or grasp that moment again. And, um, you know, through through this this, this fog and haze of, of grief, um, you do take yourself out of these situations, don't you? And you ask what if or, or you ask why um, you deal with anger. And that's the only way a lot of us can do that is if we <laughs> refer to ourselves in the th- third person or... Uh, you know, remove ourselves from from a situation we're describing to people, right? Exactly. And I think that we do that as human beings all the time, related to grief or not. You know, like, have I been a good friend? What is that person thinking about me? Like, how am I seen by others? Am I an effective parent? You know, a lot of people have come to me and just said, this book has really helped me have more open conversations with my teenagers. And I realize, you know, how bad I was at it. And now, like, trying to look from Holden's perspective at me as a parent and and being with him in those moments where he was struggling has helped me to learn a lot, I hope. Um, I mean, it's obviously too late, but it's helped me. And I think by trying to put myself into his point of view um, also came through in the book that it, it's it's kind of weird. Like, grief makes you... Uh, deny a lot of things mm-hmm. and, and then hopefully figure out and wrestle with a lot of things and negotiate with yourself even though it's too late. 
but that is definitely a really big part of it. So that was part of my grieving is to look from Holden's point of view at what I did, what I could have done, what I didn't do, all those things. And, and I understand, uh, as you write in the book, that uh, you wrestled with whether you should write a book. And, and um, you, you talk in the book about starting to see, you say, white feathers and dimes. What were the significance of those? Oh, well, um, yeah, I, I didn't know if it was a good idea. I didn't know if it was my story to tell. There was a lot of talk over the last five or so years about cultural appropriation, and I didn't know if that applied to Holden or not. Um, as his next of kin, you know, was his story mine to tell? I actually still don't know, but obviously I've moved ahead. Mm. <laughs> um, but I would, when I would sit down to write, I would ask Holden what he wanted me to know or what he wanted me to think about or what he wanted me to ask about. And I was trying to keep our relationship alive and our conversation alive. And one of the ways I would try to do that was by going to see a psychic, actually several of them. Mm-hmm. And that part in the book that you're talking about where she let me know that I might see feathers or dimes. That's a real transcript of a real session that happened with a psychic. Incredibly accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I did see them and find them all over the place, and I continue to. And I don't know if that's just a wacky uh, thing, like grasping at some kind of connection where it doesn't exist, or if it's real, I like to think that it's real. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's... Um it's great to read because we all see signs throughout, you know, our daily life, if you will, when we're trying to decide on doing something. And, and um, I thought it was fun to see that happen. And, and I, um, I couldn't help but think that that was Holden himself. Oh, thank you. Well, I have a pretty big jar of dimes, so I keep finding them everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think that in some way we still have a connection. Indeed. Um, so in terms of constructing his voice, as, as you do in the book, um, the, those scenes in the book where we relive his days and nights as he struggles, um, it, it, all, the, all the things that you, you had uh, with you, I guess, his, his, his phone, his text messages, his emails to you, they, they do inform that voice, don't they? I mean, um, there's a marvelous line in the book where you, you write... Um, even his sentence fragments felt as relevant uh, to me as his blood sample might may, may have been to a coroner, to the coroner. Um, I think it's a great line. I mean, there, there is so much that, that one can read into one's writing, right? Oh, absolutely, including what's not said, mm. you know, including the spaces. And I could tell by Holden's tone or by whether or not he said, I love you, at the end of an email or whether... He signed off with his name how he was feeling. At least I thought I could. You know how you kind of get a vibe sure. from a text message, yeah. uh, how much effort someone's putting into it, or maybe how they feel about you or how they feel about themselves. So, yeah, I became very analytical, maybe too analytical, um, but I was trying to find out as much as I could. Is finding the root of um, Holden's addiction... Is that useful all these years later? Um, I don't think I found it. I don't even know if he was truly addicted to whatever he was using. I think emotionally he really struggled, and I really wanted to know why, you know, the basis of that. So, yeah, I analyzed it from a lot of different angles, 
Um, but it's not satisfying. It's very yeah. dissatisfying. Because yeah. if you, you know, once you read the book, you'll find out that he died in actually kind of a dumb way. Like it was really just a catastrophic series of events that, yeah. you know, maybe if any turns had happened along the way, might not have ended up that way. But I, there are so many of us struggling with this kind of grief, thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadians and people all around the world that to to try and figure out exactly why is impossible. I, I guess that you can't help but try and wonder why and what happened and how we could have maybe changed things, but there's a certain fatalism too where you can't change anything. You just kind of make yourself nutso by continuing to ask. And, and is, there, is there something instructive, say, in terms of, of parenting, inter, uh, uh, young people, say, um, as you talk in the book, and you quite candid in the book about, you know, experimentation in your own life with alcohol and drugs, and, and you talk about discussions you had with him early on. Um, do you think that, that people might, uh, I don't have children of my own, but I mean, um, parents of, of young people, do you think they'll find um, something instructive as they read your book? I hope so. Um, I have another daughter, Lila, who's mentioned in the book. She's 10 years younger than Holden. Mm -hmm. And our relationship is, of course, informed by what happened with Holden and what I learned about parenting and what I've learned since about drug use. And our conversations are a whole lot different than the ones that I had with Holden at the time when he was a teenager. And... um, I think that that's one of the most common comments I've received from parents. Um, Quite a few people have received early copies. There was just a a fortunate event with the printer that they were able to send out copies early. So already, I don't know, maybe 50 or so people have read the book. And the most common comment I'm getting from parents is that this has really helped me have much more open-ended conversations with my teenagers. And it's brought us closer. Mm. And... I think sometimes it's the distance and the not knowing what's going on that makes parents so afraid of the world right now and so afraid of what their kids are doing when they're not at home, which is, you know, a very normal part of development. So, yeah, I hope it does inform a little bit, if possible, because if we can reach our young people prior to them getting really deep into drug use Mm -hmm. or substance use or substance use disorders, then... I don't know how you would ever quantify something like that, but maybe it can preempt some trouble. You mentioned your daughter, Lila. Um, I, I'm curious to know what she and, and what your, your husband, Cam, uh, others around you say. Wh- what did they think of this, 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 pro- this time after Holden's death where, where you, you, you are relentless? You, you, you're like a detective in some parts trying to piece together what happened to your son. Cam and Lila have been unbelievably supportive. They've both allowed me the room to do this work and to grieve simultaneously while they were also grieving their son, stepson, and brother. Mm-hmm. And um, neither of them have read the book yet. They don't really, they're not quite ready to read it, mm-hmm. but they've been incredibly supportive that that's what I, that's the direction I went. Um, Lila's 19 now. She's at university and she's doing great. Um, I'm so proud of her because it, you know, it was horrible for her. And 
her young teen years were really not happy because of what happened. But I'm I'm really proud that we've stayed together, the three of us. You know, when a child dies, the rate of divorce is incredibly high. And the rate of other siblings having similar trouble is also increased. So I'm just really pleased with how we've all navigated it. It has not been easy. It's been a shitstorm at times, mm. quite honestly. Um, but here we are, and we're all still, um, you know, our relationships are great. So I'm proud of that. Did anybody, though, try to dissuade you from, from doing some of the things you did? I mean, you, you, you wrote the chief of police at, at one point try, wanting to, to go see the cell. Um, you, you went to the downtown east side. It's a beautiful scene in the book where, where you, um, Sarah Blythe uh, takes you there into um, the OPS, uh, um, I guess, trailers there at, at, in the downtown east side, and you meet Calvin. Uh, did people say that, that perhaps you should, you, you should grieve another way, perhaps, even? Um, well, I think some people in my family were concerned. I know at times Cam was concerned that I was getting a little obsessive. And, um, you know, there were times through the process where I was very depressed and very anxious and very obsessed. Um, and he would say, you know, are you sure this is a good idea? Are you sure this is what you need? I also had a lot of therapy along the way, which really helped me balance things out. Mm -hmm. um, I think my mom was worried about me uh, because I was doing something very difficult. Um, but she's not worried anymore. She's okay, and uh, I'm not worried anymore either. I'm fine. I, I, people are now scared to read the book <laughs> because they're afraid it's going to be painful. And I don't know how it landed with you, but everyone who's been reluctant to read it has ultimately said, oh... I get it. It's full of love. I'm, you know, it, it was actually, um, it was actually a beautiful experience. And it was, even though it was painful, it helped me to feel more comfortable. Like some of Holden's old friends from elementary school even yeah. have read the book and said, thank you for writing this. We all really needed to know what happened. And we all, um, we all were there. And every time we get together, we still remember Holden, you know, so it's nice. It's, it, it's nice to see how the book is being received by something um, not painful, as something more um, as a tribute, I guess. Yeah, it is a beautiful book, and I mean, it, it, it is very painful to, to, to read about the pain that you all went through, especially yourself. But it, um, what comes through is, is the, the, the love and the, the, the beauty of a relationship, you know, a mother and a son, and, and the son himself, and, and getting to know him, as I said, um, is is something that we're I think we're all better for. Um, I mentioned this scene in the book, and I thought it was one of the more powerful scenes in the book. Is is when you meet Calvin, and um, um, you render in the book the, the scene so beautifully. You, you you give the situation such dignity. Um, Calvin's own dignity comes through in the book. Um, you you want to know what happened to Holden, and you want to know, you know what it's like, I guess, to do, to do drugs. And, and so you sit with Kelvin. Um, uh, would you describe for us just what that was like for you? And, and I mean, we, we get a sense in the book, but for people listening to us, um, it, it, if, I mean, I, I'm thinking about it now and quite moved by it. Um, were you feeling the same way in the moment? I mean, you're also terrified too, right? Well, I wasn't terrified. I was uncomfortable, for sure. 
um, just watching people use substances in various forms. But I was also kind of fascinated with it. I found out from various people that Holden smoked heroin. He didn't use, I mean, he may have used IV at times, but mm. typically he would smoke it. And so I wanted to see that. I really actually wanted to try it, but I couldn't. Mm. I just I right. just couldn't allow myself to do that. So I thought I just needed to be with someone while they were doing it so I could witness and see what happened what it felt like in real time. And so um, Sarah is lovely. She's become a friend, mm-hmm. and she offered me that access. And um, the Calvin character is not a real person. He's a composite of people I met there. Mm-hmm. Um, but he holds a lot of the same traits as what I say. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to find out what was so attractive about heroin use and uh, I think the biggest thing I learned is that it takes all the pain away whatever that pain might be and I think that's something that that we, we fail to understand uh, as people who, who um, you know might decry drug use or, or, or might call for prohibition or, or or don't like the situation we're seeing in our city um, that um, you know that the, the, a safe supply is necessary, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The prohibition model that you're talking about and the typical historical war on drugs is just a colossal failure. And um, what it doesn't take into account is that all of us do things all day long to help us alleviate our pain, whether it's physical or emotional or psychological and you know, of course, of course, the opioid crisis is affecting marginalized people disproportionately. And if we really want to help, what we need to do is meet the unmet mental health needs, mm. meet the unmet housing needs, meet the unmet substance use disorder needs when necessary, instantly. And I think we'd see a big shift. But for some reason, our government's not willing to do that. Um, it, you, you talk in the book of, of this um, uh, year in your life. It was it was uh, it was ten months where where you spent abroad. Uh, we have a mutual friend in George Orr, and I remember him telling me about this trip that you you were taking and that you were documenting on your blog. Um, what was it for, and, and and what did you want for yourself in this in in the, these ten months away? Say. Well, Joe, I've signed an NDA, so I can't tell you too much about it, but let's just say I got Lisa LaFlamme uh-huh. from my radio job, and so I, uh, me, my husband Cam, our daughter Lila, we wanted to take advantage of that time. She was in grade six at the time, uh-huh. and uh, we just thought, wow, when do you get that opportunity to take that time away in the middle of your career? So that's what we did, and we decided to travel quite slowly. Uh, I already wanted to work on becoming a better writer, so I, I was turning fifty that year, and I thought I would write. 50, I would try to write fifty essays because we planned to be away for a year, uh-huh. and so I tried. I didn't quite make. I don't actually know how many I wrote because uh, we came home and then Holden died, and I just stopped doing it. But um, uh, that was my intention: was to to learn how to be a writer by writing. And was uh, Holden was invited on the trip, wasn't he? 
Yeah, he was working and he, you know, he had his own life going on. Holden had done a year at Emily Carr and he had a lot of different jobs. He was uh, pressure washing, most recently landscaping. He worked at good old Opus, the art supply store. And um, he had a lot of different jobs and lived in a lot of different places. Uh, and we invited him to come. I mean, before we left, we said, anytime, come and join us. Um, but we wanted him to pay for his own airfare. And uh, it just didn't happen. Unfortunately, that's another thing I wish had happened. That, that you you'd paid for it yourself, or, or that that he had. Yeah, that, that we had paid for it, or that we had he had somehow been able to pay for it, or mm-hmm. that he had wanted to come and see us. It was um, just another thing that didn't quite go as well as it could have. I, I had to chuckle because as a, as an only child and as a, as a son. Um, there's that moment where you're telling him, yeah, you can come as long as you pay for your own fare. And he sort of looks at you and he says, well, why don't you just pay for your rich? Why don't you mm-hmm. pay for it? And I, I had to, I had to laugh because I understood that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we didn't feel we had a budget of $33 a day per person. Mm-hmm. We were not, yeah. we were not uh, you know, we were staying in some pretty dodgy places. Um, but in Holden's mind, we were. And, of course, we are. We're very entitled people. We come from privilege. We own a home in Vancouver. Well, we don't own it. We have a huge mortgage. But you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. we have all the advantages. And so, in his mind, we should have just flown him over. But I had done that a lot of times. I swooped in and rescued Holden a lot of times, paying his bills, helping him move, you know, helping him get jobs, all kinds of things. And I just thought... You're 21. Can you save up $800 for a flight? Yeah. You know, um, but it didn't happen. There's a, a, a great line in the book. Hindsight is a mother. He can be a motherfucker. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you do, how do you um, struggle with with all these things? Like the, the, maybe I should have paid the, the the $40 a month for the cell phone, mm-hmm. or I mean, it's it's a lot easier to think about these things in hindsight. But yeah, um, well, how do you not let that consume you? What I oh. <laughs> it's consumed me. <laughs> um, but now with our daughter, Lila, uh, I am way more supportive, way more kind. That parenting style that I learned, which was, you know, you got to stand on your own two feet. You've got to, you know, look after yourselves and you'll get responsible kind of thing. Like living in Vancouver is hard. It's incredibly expensive. It's not like it was when we grew up. Mm. The world is very complicated. We didn't have to deal with climate change and the very divisive political world right now and and the unaffordability. I I could afford my first apartment when I got my first job, you know, that kind of thing. So now I would just pay for it. I say, you're right. We are entitled. We do have advantages and I will help you until you are able to do it yourself. Well, one of the, the parts of the book that I found fascinating um, is is when you talk about growing up as you did nominally Catholic and, and how you and your siblings, your parents even, sort of just, just faded away from, from religious life, if you will. Um, but after Holden's death, what was your relationship to, to more precisely faith and spirituality? I mean, did, did you gain a, 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 a more a more of a connection, say? I think so. I tried to have, I, I tried to maintain a kind of spiritual life through a very average yoga practice and some daily meditation and 
readings that I would do. Um, but after Holden died, I started questioning what it means to be alive or dead. You know, what's the difference in our consciousness and that kind of stuff. I felt at times that I could communicate with him and that that division between our different forms of inhabiting this universe were closer than uh, I had thought before. But I don't even, obviously, until I'm struggling to explain it to you, but I, I just felt that there's more to it than was taught in the, certainly in Catholic school. That's mm. just, that's just horrible. Right. And that's just rules to oppress people. But <laughs> I do, I do feel that, um, do have some kind of connection. I still feel that Holden is around. You know, I feel his present times quite, quite closely. And maybe you've had that experience, loved ones, in your life too. And I, I, I can't deny it. So I, I'm just going to sit over here in my own brand of spirituality. I don't even know what, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, you write near the end of the book that through it all, Holden helped you to become a writer did you always want to write i mean even even before you went into broadcasting was there a desire to be a writer i think in the back of a lot of people's minds there's this idea like i'll be a writer one day i'll write a no i'll be a novelist and um so yeah i did have those aspirations but i didn't really know what that meant and so when i got let go from my job I thought it was a good opportunity to investigate what that meant and that's why when we started traveling I started a writing practice through the blog that I wrote the travel blog mm -hmm. um, and then and then it became clear that I had something more important to write about once Holden died and I again just didn't know what that meant but I came at it from a very organic way and just gathered up education as I could along the way. I went to um, the writer's studio at Simon Fraser University, mm -hmm. and then some of the work um, and essays that I wrote and revised in that program I used to apply to the UBC School of Writing and was able to be accepted there and got a master's degree in creative writing. So the education that I've received along the way has been extraordinary, and I am incredibly grateful for it. Um, would I rather have my son? That's not even a question. Mm, right, right. Um, you, you talk throughout the book about um, a number of Holden's friends that you talked to. Um, there, there are several friends who did not speak to you. Um, they just didn't want to. C can you understand why? I mean, I, I, as, a, as a reader, I'm, I'm kind of angry that they didn't. But <laughs> um, I was angry. I'm not anymore because mm. I understand how much pain they are in too and everyone approaches things in their own way um you know i have friends that didn't come to holden's funeral because they just felt it was too intimate and too personal and they didn't belong there and i think that we are all on our own learning trajectories in life and some people are really into it and have and were incredibly helpful and some people weren't quite ready to go there yet and i respect that 
There's a great list of people uh, at the back of the book uh, of people you thank. I'm interested in a couple of names because <laughs> these are these are people that I've interviewed, people I like so, a, a great lot deal. of pages. <laughs> yeah, but but two in particular uh, who I like a great deal that I admire: Betsy Orland and J.J. Lee. Um, could, could you reflect a, a little bit about what, what they meant um, throughout this process for you writing this book? Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. I'd be happy to. In fact, they're both invited to the launch party tomorrow night, so I'm going to be able to see them, which will be mm, great. Um, yeah. um, Betsy Warland held a manuscript, well, held a little workshop in her living room in the West End with, I think, eight people and a friend recommended that I go and I didn't even really at the time know what it was going to be but in her living room I was when I first realized what this book could be and she encouraged me to to write um, essays and to find my voice and she encouraged me to get into the writer's studio which she founded Mm -hmm. And she is just an incredible mentor to so many writers, and I'm very, very grateful to Betsy. Um, and then when I got to SFU, J.J. Lee was the mentor of the nonfiction workshop, and, I mean, he's a totally different character, as you can imagine. He right. has a lot of expletives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was J.J. who first said to me that my own story, my own memoir, was just as important as Holden's story. And he helped me see who categorically changed the structure of the book. And it was really scary. I didn't want to write a memoir. I didn't want to be in the book at all. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, well, you realize that's not fucking possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean... I'm incredibly grateful to both both Betsy and JJ. So JJ rocked up to our first workshop wearing a poncho, which is, <laughs> you know, he's kind of legendary in the fashion sense. Yes, too. he is, yes. Um, it, it, it's um, uh, such a, a great uh, book to read, and, and I, I can only see that it'll be an important book for people to, to, to pick up because they'll get something out of it, as I did. Um through it all, Holden, uh, he he would have thought that it, the book was cool, wouldn't he? I don't know. I hope so. I I I had a lot of insecurity of that because he was a fairly private person. But I think that once you don't have a body anymore, you're not so concerned with privacy. And I think that he would also want to help. He was a helpful person. And he was always there for other people. Maybe you noticed that in the book that Holden was a very loyal friend. And I think that he would kind of put his own, I don't even know, his own sense of pride aside if he could help people in some way. And so that's what I'm counting on. Yeah, I I think the, the argument that you would have had once he read the book, I think would have been, just great to, to hear what he thought. You know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> hey, he wrote half of it. <laughs> yeah, and then and telling you, you know, where you got it wrong. and, and <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Yeah. The thing, you know, like as a graffiti writer, graffiti writers want their names to be big mm. and on the wall and full of color. And in my mind, this is kind of another version of that. 
in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure you'll be asked this a lot. Um, are you are, are you working on other writing now? I mean, not to patronize or anything. You're quite good at it. I mean, is, is there another book, say? Um, I hope there is. I hope it's a little lighter, maybe funnier. Um, although people have told me this book has a bit of humor in it. Um, a lot of humor, yeah. Um, I just wrote an essay uh, for the Globe and Mail weekend, so I have been doing a little bit of writing, but in terms of a larger project, I'm still trying to figure out what that means. Um, Tara, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today uh, about this book. As I said, it's an important one that I think uh, will help a lot of people. Um, and uh, I hope it, it's helped you in terms of, of everything that, that's gone on in your life. To, to, I hate the word move on, but, but you, you know what I mean. I, I hope that it's given you some comfort. Yeah, I'm not moving on, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right in the thick of it. Um, and, I, and I think anybody that's lost someone close to them would agree, you don't move on. You just figure out how to exist and continue to live while carrying the memory of those people that we've lost. And hopefully by having this physical object, uh, which is a book with a picture of Holden spray painting on the front, you know, hopefully we don't move on. We carry those people with us and we talk about them. We cherish them as if they were here. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And I think it should inspire a lot of us to get angry about what's going on. Uh, going on in terms of the opioid crisis? Yeah, indeed. Oh, we're just, we're just handling it so badly. Um, as a as a as a government, as a race, you know, clearly the people who are struggling with substance use disorders are valuable as everybody else. If you look at how much was spent on, well, COVID, for example, mm-hmm. and how much is spent, and the you know the deaths that are happening, not even close. So that's an area where we could certainly make some progress. Indeed, Tara, thank you so much for your time, uh, and good luck with the book. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely talking with you. The website for more is at taramaguire.com. The book is called Holden After and Before, Love Letter for a Son Lost to Overdose. It is published by Arsenal Pulp Press. Its author, Tara Maguire, joined me on the line from North Vancouver. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plunton.